Section 1. Introductory Essay of Kopal Kundala. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kopakundala by Bankam Chandra Chatterjee. Translated by H. A. D. Phillips. Introductory Essay on Bengal and Bengali Novelists. Part 1. A knowledge of the vernacular is necessary for all officials, while in the case of judicial officers, may be regarded as a sine qua non. The magistrate, who is thoroughly at home in the language, is able to dispose of cases with promptitude, and feels a certainty as to the correctness of his final decision, which cannot be felt by those who have to reply, in whole or in part, on the services of an interpreter. These facts alone constitute a sufficient incentive for acquiring a complete mastery of the language. No doubt, speaking generally, the vernacular languages of India are not worth studying for the sake of their literature. But if in this respect one vernacular is worthy of study more than another, it is certainly the Bengali language. Many people in England regard the natives of India much in the same light as they regard the natives of Africa. A perusal of the following tale will at least give them some conception of the stage of civilization at which the Bengali race has arrived, and of the intellectual attainments of the educated classes. A few words regarding the province and its material progress may not be out of place. The census of 1881 shows that the population, which now stands at 69,536,000, 861, has increased by 10.89% in 10 years. The Hindus number 45,452,806, and the Mohammedans 21,704,724. The average density of persons to the square mile is 371.41. In some districts, the average density of the rural population exceeds 1,000 to the square mile, and has caused some alarm. Hitherto, there has been no migratory movements on a large scale, owing to the conservative habits of the people, and the fondness of the agricultural community for their ancestral fields and homesteads. Beatus ille qui procul negotias. Paterna rura bubas exercet suis. But the danger, though appreciable, is not so great as is supposed. There are vast tracts of untenanted and untilled lands awaiting the plough, and these lands are in some cases situate within a few miles of those parts where the density of population is greatest. Emigration, though still unpopular, is losing its unpopularity by degrees. Education is spreading among the masses, and the old order is changing, giving place to new. That which has happened in Western countries will assuredly happen in India. During the year 1882, nearly 11,000 persons were registered as emigrants for tea gardens in Assam, and nearly 9,000 were dispatched to Mauritius, Trinidad, and other colonies. The fact that 2,000 of these emigrants were Brahmins is a hopeful sign, and indicates that caste prejudice are dying away. Cultivation is improving, 
and the fact that the land goes on producing good crops year after year seems to negative the supposition that the soil is being deteriorated or gradually exhausted. As to famine, alarmists should bear in mind the fact that India is a food-exporting country, and nothing short of general widespread famine could stop such exportation. In India, the anxiety is not so much on account of the sufficiency of food supplies as of the difficulty of transportation in emergencies to distressed areas, and with the extension of railways, this difficulty is gradually disappearing. The judicial system is most elaborate, and in the case of the criminal courts, at any rate, justice is not only exceedingly cheap, but brought to the doors of the people in a manner that is quite unknown in European countries. The jails and jail administration may compare favorably with European countries. The number and value of civil suits is largely increased, while the number of notorial registrations in 1882 and 1882-83 exceeded half a million. There is scarcely a branch of the administration which does not point to the increase and in diffusion of wealth and the material progress of the country. The government has not only not enhanced the land revenue, but the rate of incidence per acre has actually been diminished. Nevertheless, owing to increased cultivation, the receipts from this source continue to rise in the temporarily settled provinces. In permanently settled Bengal, the revenue paid by the zemindars represents only 3 or 4 percent of the value of the gross product. The receipts from salt, excise, stamps, forests, registration, post offices, and telegraphs continue to rise. In another decade, the excise revenue will probably rank in importance with the revenues from salt and opium. The material progress and increased comfort of the people makes itself manifest in many ways. District officers are unanimous in their reports on this subject. More masonry homes are being built. Substantial tanks and wells are excavated. Orchards of fruit trees are being planted in large numbers. Stone and earthware vessels have given way to brass utensils. Wooden bedsteads, chairs, and stools are to be seen in the homes of all but the very poorest classes. The number of carts for transport has increased by thousands, and the number of draft bullocks by tens of thousands. During the scarcity of 1874, nearly a quarter of a million draft bullocks were collected in a few weeks in northern Bihar and Bengal for the transport of grain by government. On the rivers, too, the number of boats has largely increased, and they are of a better and more substantial kind. Nowadays, the riot may be seen tramping along with an umbrella in his hand, and if the weather be fine, shoes on his feet. If wet or muddy, he generally carries his shoes in his hand, or slings them across his shoulder. He wears better clothes and covers the upper part of his body with a jacket or coat, while in the cold weather, he has also a shawl or wrapper. The wages of labor have largely increased, and women of the lowest classes may be seen with silver ornaments. Brass ornaments are giving way to silver, and silver to gold. The quantity and quality of jewelry worn by the women is a very sure and safe criterion of the prosperity of the people, as it is notorious that they like to invest a great portion of their savings in this way. Thefts and housebreakings, and the occasional occurrence of dacoites or gang robberies, show that the habit of hoarding and burying treasure is not yet extinct, and that the desire of the people, and especially of the trading classes, 
to conceal their wealth is still prevalent, though not so strong as under native rule. Magistrates feel some surprise on reading the daily police reports of crime to find that sums of 500 to 1,000 rupees in cash and ornaments have been stolen from some oil seller or cloth seller who does not even pay the license tax. These facts are mentioned to show that the outward and visible signs of comfort and prosperity are not the only indications of the wealth of the country. Of course, Indians, as compared with Europeans, are poor, and must remain so for a long time to come, but their wants in the shape of food, housing, and clothing are smaller and more easily and cheaply satisfied. It is probable that the poorest classes feel the pinch of poverty far less than the same classes in England. Hunger is not dreaded in ordinary times, nor are there any sufferings from the rigors of climate. The private charity shown towards the old, infirm, and helpless, as well as towards religious mendicants and professional beggars, has hitherto obviated the necessity for any poor law, and is one of the best elements of the native character. Dr. Birdwood ascribes the comfort and happiness of the agricultural classes to the happy administration of the land, and the excellent character of the land at tenures. Certainly the land question seems to have been solved in India in a satisfactory manner, while its solution is as yet incomplete in Ireland, and appears to be only beginning in England and Scotland. Though wealth is still hoarded to some extent, the natives have become fully alive to the benefits of trade, commerce, and investment of capital. Twenty million sterling of the national debt of India is held by natives, and the reason they do not hold more is that they can generally get safe investments which yield more than four or four and a half percent. Deposits in the saving banks are increasing, and the people are thoroughly familiar with currency notes, as is evident from the fact that during the year 1882-83, the total issues of notes from treasuries in Bengal amounted to £3,880,000, while the receipts of currency notes from the public amounted to £3,600,000. The increased enlightenment and prosperity of the people is manifest also from the postal and telegraphic transactions of the country. At the close of the year 1882-83, there were in the province of Bengal 1,439 imperial post offices and 3,512 letter boxes. The number of miles of lines open was 10,845, exclusive of railway mileage. The number of articles of all kinds received for delivery during the same year was 41,829,892, as against 38,431,484 in the previous year, showing an increase of 8.8%. The value of insured letters and parcels delivered by the post office reached the high figure of 1,550,000 pounds. The rate of postage compares most favorably with that of European countries. For two pice, equaling three farthings, a letter can be sent from Sinde to Assam, from Peshawar to Cape Coromin, nearly 2,000 miles. The postage from London to Brussels is two pence half penny. Professor Seeley, in his Expansion of England, has shown that India has no nationality or national unity. The English did not introduce a foreign domination into India, 
the foreign domination was there already. Prior to British rule, lawless anarchy was the chronic state of the country from the time of the invasion of Mahmud. Such anarchy was suspended for a short time over a portion only of northern India during the reign of Akbar and Shah Jahan. With this exception, may be said that there never was any security for person or property, much less for trade and commerce. The Mararata rule was but an organized system of robbery and pillage. End of section one.